have another great show for you today. Bacha Ungar Sargon is back with us, and I'm so excited to see you, Bacha. We missed you last week. I missed being here, Robbie, and we do indeed have a fantastic show planned for you all today. Joel Kotkin is going to explain why he thinks EV mandates are a war on the working class, and Liz Wolf is here to discuss the teacher's strike going on in Seattle. But first, over the weekend, there was some news from Ukraine. Ukraine appears to have driven Russian forces out of Kharkiv after a surprise counterattack in the northeast part of the country. The New York Times illustrated the regions that include over 1,000 square miles of land and a key military hub, taking back a region that Russian forces seized at the beginning of the summer. Now, victory for Ukraine is still far from certain as the Ukrainians struggle to take over regions in the south, where Russian forces are stronger near the Black Sea port of Kherson. Following the defeat for the Russians, President Putin pulled the plug on Ukraine. Literally, according to Ukraine's MP, there is no electricity or water in multiple cities across Ukraine. So far, information from the Sumy, Dnipro, Poltava, and Kharkiv re regions. Um, Russia is hitting energy infrastructure and damaging power lines as it retreats. And here you can see where the power outages occurred across the country, um, which were heavily targeted in the Northeast. Hmm. Um, Robbie, what are your thoughts seeing all of this unfold? Well, look, this is, uh, I mean, good good news for the Ukrainian resistance forces, obviously. This was a, a, a big, um, a successful operation. It kind of harkens back to, you know, the earlier days when uh, the world was a little bit taken by surprise. Well, obviously taken by surprise that the invasion was even happening, but then taken by surprise in the underperformance, the early underperformance of the Russian military. Uh, now, th that, you know, led to a lot of um, kind of, inaccurate uh, uh, predictions that, oh, well, they're not going to even be able to take over the country. <laughs> yes, it's a much bigger country. If they're committing, you know, tons of resources to doing it, then they were, you know, gradually marching, gradually winning. But Ukraine has resisted and has actually reversed some of their territorial gains. So then the question becomes, you know, what is this how does this affect Putin's thinking about how committed they are to this to this conflict? So what do you think about it? Um, I've, I, I mean, obviously, it's very moving to see people resisting occupation, right? That's wherever it's happening, wherever people are being held to get, you know, unfreely against their will. To see them resist, to see them reconquer territory, it's very moving. It's very exciting. No, I think very few people thought that Ukraine would be able to do this, and certainly they wouldn't have been able to do it without um, U.S. military aid. Yes. You know, that's separate from the question of um, whether we should be continuing to commit billions and billions of dollars to this whether or not um, you, uh, Russia would have even been able to take the Kharkiv region if Zelensky had gone to the negotiating table much earlier. You know, we talked about this before, how as right. you know, as early as two weeks into the conflict, Putin was ready to negotiate. So, you know, on the one hand, it, it, there's something extremely moving about seeing all of this happening, seeing Ukrainian forces singing the national anthem, tearing down Russian flags in Ukrainian territory, reconquering that land, resisting. Um, at the same time, I don't think it resolves any of the questions that um, are, are, are really important to keep asking about our role in this as the U.S. 
Right, and it's it's just staggering and so unfortunate the loss of life in this completely unnecessary conflict. We don't know the exact Russian numbers. I was seeing estimates over the weekend. I was seeing people trying to estimate based on the payments that uh, that the, the the Russian state makes to families of uh, service members who've actually been killed. And so, if you were you know doing those calculations and those figures were accurate, I, I, you're seeing you know range of like. 40,000, 50,000, 60,000 um, Russian casualties in just the last few months. I have no idea if those are accurate, but that's what I was seeing, you know, people trying to put it together. That is so many people, so many young people dying for no reason whatsoever, for a, you know, a territory, uh, a, a, a squabble over a piece of territory. I mean, this is, this is medieval. It's so, so sad. That this is happening, and we absolutely blame um, Vladimir Putin for deciding to do this invasion. Um, totally, the blame is on him, in my view. But that doesn't mean that, you know, despite that, we still have control over what our response is. And are we continuing to send money with no, you know, no impetus? To negotiate, I mean that is what we're doing. The Biden administration says, as long as it takes, as long as it takes. Well, what if what if it takes forever? What if it takes another hundred thousand or two hundred thousand lives? Uh, we, you know, we're not putting any. They they feel Zelensky, I guess, feels like he can keep um, the, you know the military phase of this going uh, without without needing to negotiate because they have an unlimited supply of resources from us. Right. And it's not clear what victory looks like for Ukraine. Does that include retaking the Donbass? Does that right. include retaking Crimea? Which, is, you know, exactly. So I, I think that, you know, the objectives are not very clear. Um, in addition to the huge and um, very tragic um, casualty number, um, the Wall Street Journal had a really interesting article last week in which it argued that even, you know, we're, we keep being told that, um, you know, the Russian ruble is as strong as ever and that Russia is not actually feeling uh, the financial and economic impact of this. The Wall Street Journal argued that the data that we have, uh, you know, comes straight from the Kremlin, right? And that there's mm -hmm. much reason to doubt that that is accurate and that the Russian economy is not actually suffering from this. So I think the question now becomes, well, how does Putin respond to this huge, humiliating defeat? Does he become even more aggressive, even more reckless? Or does he start to, you know, come pull back and think about negotiating? Yeah. That's a good point. It's, genu it's genuinely hard to get real information on what's going Going on in Ukraine, in Russia, and so you know, so many mainstream sources that wanted to you know venerate Zelensky's sainthood status immediately. Talk, oh, Russian is failing, collapsing. The Putin regime is done. Yeah, those are from our own, from Western sources, from mainstream sources that are totally off base. So it's so good to hear you know the counter perspective, the alternative perspective, even from you know Russian state-run media. You should at least consider what they're saying. It could be more accurate in some cases, but that doesn't mean it's always more accurate. Or yeah, that's the whole picture. It's just so important for people to, you know, seek multiple sources of information and admit that it is genuinely hard to know who is right on some of these, some of these issues. But uh, on the energy question, Putin's flex on the power grid has been a central theme in this story. Recently, the UK and the EU announced $500 billion for energy subsidies in a costly race to protect their economies from freezing up this winter if Russia cuts the cord or if sanctions prevent the use of Russian entities. As friend of the show and economist Richard Wolf notes, Ukraine's GDP was $156 billion the year before the war with Russia. Now the UK and EU are spending $500 billion to cope with, every, uh, with energy prices due to war-related anti-Russian sanctions. Something wrong here? 
you think? Meanwhile, Ukraine is asking the U.S. for $1.5 billion in aid for gas purchases. And before we wrap up, Ukrainian President Zelensky will headline a U.S. defense industry conference hosted by the National Defense Industrial Association. How about that? He's expected to appeal for more weapons, according to The Hill, according to us. <laughs> this comes after last week's latest billion-dollar investment in the country, where the Pentagon unveiled nearly $3 billion in new aid. And 18 of its neighbors included heavy weaponry, ammo, and armored vehicles. So that, that's, uh, you know, it, uh, I, I, many on the left, and you're probably familiar with this line of, uh, of, of reasoning, will say that that's the main driver of all these foreign policy conflicts is actually a defense industry, is actually to create demand for uh, people who sell weapons and missiles and armored cars and guns and all of that kind of stuff. And, and you know, the, the geopolitical machinations are below that. The overarching thing is people stand to make money for selling arms, and that's what guides our policy. And there's, you know, tremendous industry capture, and, you know, generals go from advising presidents and, and political figures to then working for the industry. Um, are, do, you, do you agree with it? Do you think that's the main reason for all of these things and we really should, you know, see things like this and just go, well, how, how could we ever have peace when defense industries are, you know, sponsoring conferences where the very people choosing to be combatants, you know, are, are lobbying for more weapons? Um, you know, when when faced with a choice between a conspiracy of like evil genius masterminds, yeah. you know, controlling things and then just like the reality of public sentiment and, you know, feeling like something is right and thus feeling like we should do everything we can. I, I, to me, the second explanation is a lot more compelling. Um, you know, I think people look at Ukraine, they feel correctly that Ukraine is the victim of the aggression of a murderous, thuggish re regime in Russia and feel, well, then shouldn't we do everything we can to help them? And the answer is no, we shouldn't. It can both be the case. It is both the case that Ukraine is the victim of this horrific, um, unprovoked attack and be the case that we have Americans here, we have Europeans, and we have people in Africa who are now going to starve, basically, because of our involvement and support of um, this conflict. So I, I think, you know, it could be, I don't know, I mean, it could be that there is some sort of big conspiracy here, and that's what's driving things. But I think, you know, the more likely explanation is that people can't separate between what makes them feel good and, and the right thing to do, which in this case is to care a little bit more about their neighbors and a little bit less about what's happening so far away. What about you, Robbie? Are you convinced by the um, conspiratorial view? No, I, no, I'm not. <laughs> Bree and I talk about it, I always say. <laughs> <laughs> that uh, I think she, uh, she and, and Ryan and other people who sat in the left chair really, uh, you know, and it's helpful to, to hear their perspective on the role that, you know, money and lobbying uh, plays on so much of our policy, which obviously I understand. I'm you know, very concerned about, about collusion, about private interests, um, you know, lobbying government for more favorable uh, uh, protection or regulation or subsidy or whatever it is for, for specific firms that are the big government guys and they can you know crowd out other people and 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 yes and, and obviously that can happen in war the creating more demand oh you know we got to move these uh these missiles off the shelf etc so I, I certainly think that is a factor but like you Bacha, right i suspect that i mean zelensky has like 90 something percent approval right he, he's he's right. doing he's clearly doing what most of the yeah. ukrainian people want him to do so to, to think that you know absent the economic incentives there would be no conflict 
Um, right, I, yeah, I, I don't think that's the case either, so. Yeah. All right, well, we'll tell you what's on our radars coming up next. Pacha, what's on your radar? In the wake of the passing of Queen Elizabeth II, Britain's longest reigning monarch, the tributes to the queen have focused on her dignity, her sense of duty, her grace, and her mandate to rise above the fray. On cable news channels from politicians and heads of state and in op-eds and publications both here and in the UK, many have stressed the queen's commitment to being apolitical at a time of intense and increasing polarization, a symbol of unity in a divided world. It is the end of an era, many lamented, remarking how difficult it is to imagine a leader of our current era as committed to unity as the queen was. They are right that it's hard to imagine such a leader. Our own head of state, President Biden, who campaigned on unifying the country, promising to be the president of those who voted for him and those who did not alike, has recently made a habit of casting his political opponents as extremists, even fascists. In recent weeks, he has made a habit of hurling cheap insults at his political opposition, smearing MAGA Republicans as semi-fascists and a threat to democracy not exactly the behavior of a unifier. One day after the 21st anniversary of the September 11th attack, a day that is known for the unity it brought almost as much as for the tragedy and horror that it wrought, it is with a heavy heart that we ask, are we hopelessly divided, possibly forever? The media certainly wants you to believe that we are. Books and op-eds about how deeply polarized we have become are par for the course, hyping everything from the polarization spiral to predictions of a coming civil war. We are past the point of no return, the media warns. Apparently, even scholars of polarization are polarized, per the New York Times. As Tiffany Cross put it on her MSNBC show a few weeks ago, people keep saying a civil war is coming. I would say a civil war is here, and I don't mean to be hyperbolic. The problem is it is hyperbolic and not least because it is untrue. It's true that our elites in the political and chattering classes and those who run corporations and big tech companies are increasingly partisan. But that's because they're making millions of dollars and consolidating power around trying to make Americans hate each other. But despite their best efforts, polarization remains by and large an elite phenomenon. Somehow, by the grace of God, despite the billions and billions of dollars being spent trying to make us hate each other, Americans are much more united than they are divided over some of the biggest, most important issues, the values this great nation was founded on, yet struggled for much of its history to make good on. The evidence is everywhere if you know where to look. Take a statistic that came out last week from Gallup measuring approval for interracial marriage between black and white Americans. Gallup first started asking Americans about their feelings on the subject back in 1958, when approval for interracial marriage was an abysmal 4%. As of 2022, approval for interracial marriage has reached a near unanimous high of 94%, and there is almost no difference between white and non-white respondents. 
the regional difference, too, has evaporated. Southern Americans now approve of interracial marriage at the same rate as their Eastern, Midwestern, and Western neighbors. As recently as 1991, approval for interracial marriage in the South was at just 33%, compared to 54% in the East and 60% in the West. Today, it's at 93%, 94%, and 97% in the South, East, and West. Of course, you could say that many of these respondents approve of interracial marriage, but still secretly harbor racist sentiment. But if you would accept someone's opposition to interracial marriage as proof of racism, then you must admit its absence must also signify something. (laughs) Maybe you think people haven't become less racist, but only less willing to admit their racism to pollsters. But even that is a huge leap forward. Racism has become a social taboo. 93% of Southern Americans want their neighbors and Gallup pollsters to believe that they have the same views as the liberals that they probably mocked just 20 and 30 years ago. Something similar happened on the subject of gay marriage. Approval among Republicans has skyrocketed in recent years from 16% approval in 1995 to 55% approving as of last year, including 61% of young Republicans. Many believe that we may see 10 or more Senate Republicans join Democrats in enshrining the right to gay marriage into law. At a time of intense polarization, this is a major feat. Recall that they weren't willing to do the same for baby formula. On other important issues, too, Americans are much more united than divided. Take abortion, an issue that the media and our politicians assure us is hugely divisive. But the majority of Americans actually agree by and large about abortion. They oppose abortion bans and they want it to be generally legal in the first trimester and in cases of rape, incest and mother's health. And that's about it. Support for abortion craters when you ask respondents about the second or third trimesters. On criminal justice, too, there is no longer a partisan divide. In recent years, Republicans have been at the forefront of criminal justice reform. Red states like Oklahoma, Georgia, and Idaho have been quietly releasing prisoners and reforming their criminal justice systems for the better part of a decade. Supreme Court Justice Neil Gorsuch has consistently sided with the liberal justices in criminal justice cases. And President Trump's memory hold First Step Act released 5,000 black men from prison. It's not been memory hold for them. Even when it comes to police brutality, Republicans have been newly vocal. In the wake of George Floyd's horrific murder in 2020, South Carolina Senator Lindsey Graham announced that he was seeking proposals to improve policing and combat racial discrimination regarding the use of force. Soon after, Senator Tim Scott, the only black Republican senator, introduced a police reform bill that was later killed by Democrats. Scott and Graham were joined by none other than then Republican Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, who told reporters in the wake of Floyd's murder, we are still wrestling with America's original sin. It is perfectly clear we are a long way from the finish line. And at a luncheon for Republican senators, Tom Cotton of Arkansas stood up and said, young black men have a very different experience with law enforcement in this nation than white people. And that's their impression and experience. And we need to be sensitive to that and do all we can to change it. Well said. You might say, well, progressive prosecutors and bail reform efforts are divisive, but they aren't. They are wildly unpopular, just like Republican efforts to ban abortion in all cases. Democrat and Republican Americans alike oppose these measures, especially now amid a crime wave. Our elites want us to believe that these issues divide Americans, but they don't. They divide the elites of both sides while uniting a majority of Americans. 
I talk to working class Americans every week across the country who work side by side with folks who disagree with them on politics. They tell me the same thing over and over. We don't have the luxury of hating our coworkers who vote for the other party. We rely on them too much. It just doesn't matter as much as having a good working relationship. Now, the Pew Research Center recently released a study that they claim showed signs of partisan hostility growing. Quote, growing shares of both Republicans and Democrats say members of the other party are more immoral, dishonest, and close-minded than other Americans, the study claimed to find. But the questions they asked respondents weren't about the members of the other party as much as they were about the parties themselves or their politicians. Quote, do you have a favorable or unfavorable opinion of the Republican Party or the Democratic Party? How well do each of the following phrases describe the Republican or Democratic Party? Compared to other Americans, would you say Republicans are, with a list of attributes, which comes closer to your view of candidates for political office? How much do you like or dislike Republican or Democratic political leaders who X, Y, or Z? People aren't turning on their fellow Americans so much as they are on political parties and leaders. It's somewhat wishful thinking on the part of those in power to call this negative partisanship. And it's not just in this study either. A 2019 study by James Druckmann and Matthew Lewandowski in Public Opinion Quarterly found that when answering questions about the other party, individuals think about elites more than voters. When the elites of the party were separated out from average Americans, the researchers found that on every measure, quote, respondents are more negative toward the elites of the other party than they are toward voters. And Anthony Fowler, a professor of public policy at the University of Chicago, has done numerous studies that fly in the face of the polarization narrative, finding again and again that voters are more moderate, more informed by policy, and more willing to change their views than many would like you to believe. Quote, to be sure, there were real policy disagreements among Americans, writes Fowler. But for every extreme liberal or conservative who agrees with their party on most issues, there are far more people in the middle who think that Nancy Pelosi is too far to the left and that Mitch McConnell is too far to the right. It's our elites who want us to believe that we are divided for the simple fact that it benefits them. It's clear how this works in politics. If you can convince your constituents that the person you're running against is a fascist or a groomer, the race is over, right? Because if the choice is you or Hitler, you pretty much have it in the bag. And if you can convince them that your opponents, supporters, and voters are fascists and deplorables who cling to their guns and their Bibles and their bigotries, well, who wants to be in that category? Divisiveness in politics is a shortcut, a workaround from having to actually deliver to your constituents. Something similar has happened to the mainstream, even legacy media, with the collapse of the local newspaper industry and the birth of a business model that is diametrically opposed to the goal of getting the widest circulation. The business incentives of digital media rate success in terms of engagement rather than circulation or ad revenue. And the tools of digital media make it possible to target content to specific audiences based on income and zip code, while the back end of publication publishing software tells you exactly what these audiences are clicking on, how often and for how long, so you can give them more and more and more of it while mining their data to sell to other companies. Of course, online, the most engaged readers and viewers are always the most extreme, which means that our news outlets began catering to the most extreme elements of their audiences. Social media companies work in a similar way. The currency there is your attention, and the more emotional you are, the longer you stay on page and the more likely you are to click on an ad. And there's an easy way to get people emotional online, 
Make them hate each other. Every time you hate a stranger on the internet, someone just made a million dollars. Our elites desperately want us to hate our fellow Americans because it puts money in their pockets and gives them power, and we absolutely have to resist. The thing that was miraculous about the response to 9-11 was not that Americans united because we're not divided. It's that our leaders did. Our leaders showed the grace that Americans show every single day working in nursing homes in Florida and in manufacturing plants in Iowa and in construction in Minnesota. For a change, our leaders were worthy of our support. For a change, they were representing us instead of what they demand today, that we defend them. Unlike the UK, we don't have a sovereign. We fought a war to be freed of the yoke of monarchy. Here, we are the sovereign, which means that we have to be the uniters, the ones representing the United States of America, a nation finally getting close to making good on the idea it was founded upon, dignity and equality for all. And on the anniversary of that horrific day 21 years ago, it is essential that we commit together not to let those who would divide us succeed. Wise words, Bacha. My only, uh, I guess, <laughs> part of dissension here is that I do fear too much unity. Too, I mean, like, rah, rah, we should all be, mm-hmm. you know, not divided. It, it's a nice sentiment. It's, it's generally true. I think the extent to which people, you know, want to tear each other apart over politics doesn't even matter. You know, you, we don't have, <laughs> most people don't have much say over what the policies of the government are going to be anyway. I mean, I know it's a democracy, but you still just get one vote. It's a pretty kind of pointless way to preoccupy yourself and just fight with everybody all the time. But, you know, something I I don't miss from the kind of 9-11 era was the amount of consensus there was. Yes, we were all united, and that unity allowed our government to get away with some policies that now pretty much everybody agrees and has come around to thinking were very bad. And the the amount of of unity there was, you know, allowed for the Iraq War and, and, and the TSA, and which, oh my God, we're on the 21st anniversary of that, aren't we? So while, while I hope we can come together as a country and be more united in sort of a kind of general attitude toward your fellow neighbor, I, like I totally agree with you. Yelling at people online, so unproductive. It's just, it's just good for, right, some media companies, et cetera. Uh, totally agree on that. But I, I don't, we, we should have, we do have actual disagreements and disagreement can, all, can be a, a healthy thing in a democracy where we want the government to be constrained. I mean, can you imagine if we had a 9-11 style consensus about, you know, the need to like kill the bad guys or whatever, uh, how much more money, for instance, we would be sending to Ukraine or something like that? That is such an important point. Like, we don't want to unify beyond the point where we have debate because a democracy Mm -hmm. is literally founded on the ability to tolerate the views of people you disagree with and to have those conversations. So I I, I love that you're pointing that out. I think that's a really important point. It's just, I think now, instead of debating whether or not, you know, black people should be treated the same as white people, gay people should be treated the same as straight people, you know, we're now, like, that has freed us up to have healthy debate and disagreement about things like to what extent should America be engaged in, you know, foreign policy of other countries, Mm -hmm. you know, to what extent should we be supporting Israel, the Ukraine, right? These are really important, healthy debates um, that I I think there should be, there is room and there must be room in a democracy to debate these things. Um, Just not the other things. (laughs) For people to focus, you know, if you're going to, if you're going to hate Hate the policy, hate the idea, don't hate your fellow citizens. The way both Republicans and Democrats, uh, again, the, the activists, the partisans, talk about each other is, is such a such 
alienating language. So, you know, the, the Republicans and Democrats you know, hate us. They're, okay, well, say they have a very different view of how they want the country to be organized and they have different values. And you can really, really dislike those views and values and you should argue against them. Don't, don't personalize it to your, you know, your fellow citizen, your fellow countrymen. And of course, that goes absolutely in the other direction as well, the way, you know, mainstream media talks about Republicans like they're monsters who, you know, crawled out of tunnels in the earth to, you know, I don't know, bring back the eye of Sauron <laughs> or something. I had to work in a, a nerd reference, as, uh, as Brie always accuses me of doing. <laughs> well, I'm so glad you did, and I'm so excited to hear what's on your radar next. Robbie, what's on your radar? Well, the death of Queen Elizabeth II last Thursday was a sad event for the millions of people in the United Kingdom and around the world who revered the long-reigning monarch. Elizabeth became queen in 1952 and reigned for 70 years, which is longer than any other monarch in history except for Francis Louis XIV. Throughout her reign, Elizabeth was immensely popular and, if anything, support for the monarchy and for the queen personally has only increased in recent decades. Many saw Elizabeth as an inspiration, a role model, a sympathetic and comforting public figure, even though in modern times the British monarchy has largely become a symbolic institution. Now, we Americans, of course, do not have a monarchy. In fact, we quite famously rebelled against the English crown and formed our own country on the principle that kings and queens should not rule over free people. Even so, it's perfectly appropriate to oppose the institution of monarchy, one should, I'd argue, while still recognizing that Elizabeth was a great woman and an icon to many. And her passing is a sad thing and a somber occasion for both her family and for millions of people worldwide. Not everyone feels this way, however. Enter Uju Anya, who is a professor of critical sociolinguistics, whatever that is. On Twitter, Professor Anya expressed the following comment about Queen Elizabeth's death. I heard the chief monarch of a thieving, raping, genocidal empire is finally dying. May her pain be excruciating. Now, I implied a minute ago that I don't know what critical sociolinguistics is, but I'm lying. I actually do know what it is. It's a study of the structure and history of languages. So in other words, Professor Anya is someone who knows to choose her words carefully. She probably means what she says, therefore. And in this case, what she said was that she hoped Queen Elizabeth suffered as she died. That was a nasty, vile remark, and Anya ought not to have said it. It's absolutely fine to criticize colonialism and the monarchy, but let's be real. The British Empire began the process of disbanding before Elizabeth's reign started. Moreover, the queen was not actually in charge of the government. She had little power over the UK's foreign policy. And as News Nation's Zed Jelani points out, even many former colonies uh, revered Elizabeth. It's simply not the case that she was widely despised in places that the UK once governed. That's because we don't, and we shouldn't, practice generational guilt. We try to make amends with peoples and groups who have been harmed by our own forerunners, and it's right to do so, broadly speaking. You're not responsible for your ancestors' actions, however. And if you go back far enough, you'd surely find an ancestor who was engaged in violence or cruelty, no matter who you are. That's true for white people, it's true for black people, it's true for brown people, Asian people, etc. Because the world used to be a much more barbaric place, and all descend from the same people. Anyway, that's a very long way of explaining what is probably perfectly obvious to most people watching this. Wishing excruciating pain on someone else is really bad. You shouldn't do it. It was a disgusting tweet, and the criticism the professor received in response to it was well-deserved. 
No, Professor Anya did not deserve the torrent of death threats she claimed she also received because just as it's not okay to wish someone a painful death, it's also not okay to say really nasty things in response. Again, these are obvious points that most people innately understand or learn from their mothers when they are children, but social media and Twitter in particular has a habit of bringing out the worst in everyone. Now here's where things get interesting. Twitter decided to take down that tweet, claiming that it violates the company's policies. So here's the relevant policy. According to Twitter, we do not tolerate content that wishes, hopes, promotes, incites, or expresses a desire for death, serious bodily harm, or serious disease against an individual or group of people. This includes, but is not limited to, hoping that someone dies as a result of a serious disease, like, I hope you get cancer and die, wishing for someone to fall victim to a serious accident, I wish that you would get run over by a car next time you run your mouth, something like that. Saying that a group of individuals deserve serious physical injury, this group of protesters don't shut up, they deserve to be shot. Uh, stuff of that nature. Further, Twitter specifically says it has a policy of asking users to delete tweets that call for violence against specific groups or people who have done bad and violent things. Twitter gives the example of saying, like, I wish all rapists would die and child abusers should be hanged. Okay, so I can certainly see the argument, based on their explanation of that policy, that the professor's tweet actually does violate it. Though I have to wonder if it's enforced consistently whatsoever, because now Twitter is a private company, so it's not obligated to enforce its policies consistently, but this still seems like a policy that's ripe for abuse. In fact, the reason it attracted Twitter's attention in the first place might be because Amazon CEO Jeff Bezos quote tweeted the professor and criticized her. Now, after Bezos said something about it, Carnegie Mellon, which is where Anya works, weighed in as well. Quote, we do not condone the offensive and objectionable messages posted by Uju Anya today on her personal social media account. Free expression is core to the mission of higher education, however. The views she shared absolutely do not represent the values of the institution, nor the standards of discourse we seek to foster. Free expression is essential to higher education, and I'm glad to hear Carnegie Mellon confirming that it won't punish the professor. The university makes an explicit guarantee of broad academic freedom and free speech protections for students and faculties, and it should never betray that promise, no matter how vile the speech. Carnegie Mellon also condemned the substance of the tweet, and while I agree with the condemnation, I think it's less clear they needed to say that at all. The university is not and should not be on the hook for every crazy thing said by a professor or by a student uh, who goes there. Now, it's possible, as some have pointed out, the university felt like it had to say something precisely because Jeff Bezos has given Carnegie Mellon a $2 million donation recently. Now, to be clear, Bezos did not call for action to be taken against Anya. But he might try to be more aware about using his own platform constructively in the future. Universities already engage in far, far too much silencing of controversial viewpoints, often done at the behest of a newly empowered left wing. Sometimes the students themselves successfully pressure institutions to sanction professors or disinvite troublesome speakers. It's a bad and a disturbing trend. We shouldn't give it any oxygen. Now, for her part, Uju Anya doubled down, writing on Twitter, If anyone expects me to express anything but disdain for the monarch who supervised a government that sponsored the genocide that massacred and displaced half my family, and the consequences of which uh, those alive today are still trying to overcome, you can keep wishing upon a star. She did not respond to my request for comment. So what do you think about this, Bacha? I, <laughs> my, you know, my, my gut reaction to Twitter taking this down, so I'm like, Okay, this is a really bad tweet. As I said, I think everyone understands that it's a 
bad tweet. Then it got taken down, and I'm like, really? They took it down? Then I looked at the policy, and I'm like, oh, I guess it does violate the policy. I have to imagine this policy just gets violated constantly, right? People are always saying like edgy things that appear to, you know, are not actually threats of violence, but kind of wishing something bad on someone. So, okay, fine. I, I do suspect that maybe they did something because Jeff Bezos, of all people, was upset about it. Um, and I don't think Carnegie Mellon needed to say anything about it, but they're right to, uh, to you know, point out that she sh absolutely should enjoy academic freedom to say things that are just beyond the pale, in my view. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think I, I saw this sort of in the context of I think uh, the people who were sort of pointing this out and and sort of you know ratioing her before it got taken down were sort of mostly sort of center center right, and I, I I'm sure that Twitter has this problem, which is that you know it it does censor the right and it censors often legitimate points on the right to a much greater degree than it censors the left. And so when there's an opportunity to say, oh, this clearly violated, you know, our standards on the left, they would jump on that so they can sort of say, oh, you see, we do it on both sides. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah, right. No, exactly. Yeah, yeah they can, they'll be able to point back to this one and say, exactly. well, we did, you know, we did, uh, we did do that. And I, you know, and I saw this, and, and by the way, this professor is not the only person who expressed this sentiment. I, I saw this, uh, this sentiment coming from, you know, kind of a very anti-colonialist voice. I'm also against colonialism. Colonialism was bad. But uh, I, I do think it's historically just totally wrong to hold Elizabeth II. She was not, she was a figurehead. Um, for, she was not actually in charge of government policy. You know, they were decolonizing by then anyway. Again, I, you don't have to have, I, I don't, I, I'm an American. I don't believe in having a monarchy. But she was a, she was a, a national icon and an inspirational figure for so many. And I, I think it's perfectly appropriate to mourn her and celebrate her life and also not really hold her responsible for the misdeeds of the British Empire, which, to be clear, were significant. But that, that is true of, like, all previous governments, every, like horrible things were done by so many of our even recent ancestors. So I, it, it's, it seems very weird to like wish pain on this, you know, this old woman, just like l let her rest in peace. And also her personal legacy was, you know, she took on Margaret Thatcher over sanctions to South Africa in support of sanctions. And she, you know, danced with the president of, uh, of Ghana in 1961 when there was still like, you know, segregation in America. Right. So on a personal level, mm -hmm. she was a, an anti-racist, what we would call an anti-racist at a time, like much before that was sort of the consensus view in the in the, you know, in the developed world. So I, I think that to, to A, wish harm on someone, B, hold them personally responsible for something they didn't have control over and C, allied her own personal um, record. Yeah, it was a bad tweet. <laughs> she also, uh, she drove uh, in a car. She drove around uh, visiting uh, Saudi Arabian uh, prince, I believe, yeah. who in, in, at the time women were not allowed to drive in Saudi Arabia. So uh, another example of that kind of, uh, you know, the, the good kind of, uh, of, of uh, wokeness, if you want to call it that, uh, actual, actual equality. So, all right, we'll have more rising right after this. Stay with us. Today, students in Seattle will miss a fourth day of school as Seattle public school teachers continue their strike, which started on September 7th. The teachers are demanding higher pay, higher teacher-to-student ratios, particularly in special needs and multilingual rooms, as well as laptops for teaching assistants. 
the Seattle Education Association, or the SEA, which is the group on strike, writes on its website that 93% of its members are working more than assigned or contract hours. The group also argues that teachers' pay is not keeping up with the skyrocketing cost of living in Seattle. According to data from the Center Square, some 40% of Seattle public school full-time teachers do make more than $100,000 per year. Associate editor at Reason Magazine, Liz Wolf, joins us now to weigh in. So thank you so much for joining us, Liz. Um, you know, I feel very mind divided about this story because on the one hand, you know, you have these sort of desk unions representing people who make, you know, over $100,000 a year, which puts you in the top 10% very solidly. On the other hand, um, you know, I, we don't want to say that any group of people should be beyond advocating um, for a living wage. And when you think about the, you know, the right, for example, let's just take housing in Seattle, you know, to, to afford comfortably a two bedroom apartment in Seattle, you have to make $123,000 a year. So on the one hand, you know, I, I, I feel that these are not the people that we typically think of as requiring, you know, uh, the kind of support that a union would give you. On the other hand, um, you know, they are extremely important workers. Who is more important than the people educating our children? And the cost of living has actually skyrocketed in Seattle. What say you? Well, I see an enormous difference between public sector unions and private sector unions. I am very sympathetic to uh, the idea. And I think you can make a defensible libertarian case that collective bargaining when done by private actors is a perfectly appropriate sort of First Amendment expression but I think that that doesn't quite extend to public sector employees as well. Uh, I look at cop unions and I look at the degree to which they so frequently protect bad actors from getting fired. I look at teachers unions as yet another uh, institution that very much enables all kinds of terrible behavior. I really do consider the degree to which uh, COVID policy would have gone so differently had we not had incredibly powerful teachers unions in this country that really lobbied to keep schools closed far beyond what a lot of the medical community was saying was necessary. Uh, and, and in a way that was really out of step with the examples of many school districts in Europe. So I, I'm sympathetic to the idea that, you know, some of these teachers complaints are valid, but I think we really need to go back to a first principles level and say, what exactly are these public sector unions protecting? Oftentimes some really, really bad behavior. My understanding from, from looking at teacher compensation uh, packages, not specifically in Seattle, but just kind of around the country, it, it looks to me like teacher pay is, obviously it, it ranges vastly. It's certainly not, um, it, I don't think it's, it's obscene by, by any stretch of the imagination. What teachers, public school teachers do get that is, is pretty good compared to other, other sectors, uh, the benefits are very good, and often the hours are very good because they, they get off um, of summers or sometimes it's not a full day, which is not to say they, they, they work very hard, et cetera. Um, and they have a lot of, they have a tremendous amount of job uh, protection, tremendous job protection, which I think is, can be frustrating for overperforming teachers who are probably not compensated or just doing, is distinguished enough because really the only, you get these automatic pay raises or you get a pay raise, you know, if you went and got a master's of education, even if that's not really making you necessarily a better teacher. So there's, there's a lot of, uh, I think there can be a lot of frustrating incentives in the teaching profession that are not really addressed by the kinds of things 
union uh, that that a union is going to advocate for, right? Because they want they they're they're going to be advocating for better you know minimum standards of pay or or, or even more credentialism. Like, what if you you know you get even more if you could, you know go go to <laughs> go go further into student loan debt to get a master's or whatever? Like those kinds of they're they're not going to be advocating like let's really recognize our exceptional teachers and figure out how to how to um, change the system so more teachers are mimicking their behavior. Like it's just not that's just not how it works. Exactly. I think both you and I would be on board with a much more meritocratic system because mm -hmm. it's worth noting that there are exceptional teachers out there who are really overperforming and there are a ton of teachers out there who are terribly underperforming. All I want, given how important this profession is, is for pay to be um, something that incentivizes better performance. Uh, and I think we're not in a situation where that is the case. And I think teachers unions are a significant part of the puzzle as to why um, we've gotten so far away from that. I mean, even like FDR was opposed to public sector unions. You guys, this like, you know, years and years ago, d decades ago, there were tons of progressives and liberals who were very much opposed to this, even if they're, you know, staunch proponents for collective bargaining overall. Um, but I think specifically with the Seattle Educators Association, the specific union and their demands, I mean, they're asking for better staffing ratios in certain classrooms, okay. They're asking for cost of living increases, which by the way, I'm pretty sure that Seattle Public Schools has offered to meet them halfway, and yet that's not good enough for them. Um, you know, they're asking for, uh, that one of their big complaints has to do with pay, but it also has to do with the fact that teachers are frequently expected to work beyond their, their contracted hours Guess what? In any other profession, there would be situations where you sometimes log a few more hours in that week because that is part of what you need to do to get all of your work done. Um, and I understand that that's not how this works in this specific industry, but I think it's worth sort of noting that their expectations are so warped compared to how it works in so many private sectors. Uh, and I think I think it's a really bad uh, it's a really bad issue that they have these sort of unrealistic expectations for what work is like. Yeah, I, you know, something I just want to throw into the mix is it's very interesting to me that um, so when Glenn Youngkin was running, he ran on a platform of part of which was increasing pay for teachers. We now saw Ron DeSantis approve a big increase for teachers in Florida. You know, the, it is so interesting to me that these Republicans are saying, you know, OK, well, we don't approve of probably unions, but instead what we're going to do is preempt them by making sure that teachers who are so important um, feel that they can afford the lives that they're living based on what they're making. Yeah, I think that's absolutely uh, one path out of this. Uh, I think in general, one thing that we could really do is just try to reduce the amount of influence that teachers unions have. It's honestly astonishing to me that they still have as much public support as they do. And I think some of this has to do with like historic revisionism from the Biden administration. We saw uh, the White House press secretary merely like two weeks ago saying that Democrats were really the ones working on school reopening in spite of Republicans, <laughs> which if you look at any school closure tracker and you look at the degree to which it corresponds with you know, super blue districts versus super red districts. Oh my God, you guys, it's delusional. <laughs> like that is a delusional, completely totally, incorrect totally. comment. Absolutely worthy of fact checking. It's totally detached from reality. And look, I'm not a huge Ron DeSantis fan. I'm not really even a huge Glenn Youngkin fan, though I generally favor uh, moves towards school choice. 
I'm not saying Republicans are, you know, wonderful in this area always. And I think we actually see, um, you know, we need more radical changes uh, within school districts and in terms of allowing school choice to actually get the educational outcomes we deserve in this country. But I do think it's it's worth saying, you know, teachers unions uh, and the degree to which they continuously uh, allow for some really, really terrible policies, some terrible COVID policies, returns of mask mandates, stuff like that. They're uh, pretty horrible institutions, and I think we're seeing some bad behavior on display in Seattle right now. The, um, the request they have for teachers' aides to get laptops reminded me of, I had actually forgotten this because it's so ridiculous, you would think, like, I hallucinated it, but the uh, Chicago <laughs> teachers had, during the pandemic, there was a part at which they were, right, they were refusing, the teachers' union was refusing to do, you know, in-person schooling, but they did have these students who needed to be somewhere, right, to mimic the like daycare, childcare function. So you had, you, they were hiring teachers' aides because those people would, are not unionized to just kind of sit in a classroom while, and the kids would show up to the classroom, but learn virtually from a teacher who didn't have to come in, which is so, <laughs> I think everyone can recognize, like, completely absurd, I mean, even absurd from an epidemiological standpoint, like they were still doing, they were going to be in, in, in the classroom with an adult, but that adult would not be the teacher because the teachers had enough political power to refuse to actually do that. So, so they were going to hire new employees to do that instead. I mean, that's, that's the kind of, I think, ridiculousness that you're getting at when we talk about some of these policies. Well, and I don't want to cherry pick examples, but if you look at a lot of the protest tactics used um, to uh, lobby for greater COVID related closures, you saw teachers trotting out body bags and doing these die in protests and writing their own gravestones to, to try to make the case that if they return to the classrooms, uh, they would necessarily contract COVID and die. And there would be like a crazy, crazy death toll you saw them, I think, in Arizona, unions were writing uh, obituaries, like pre-written obituaries that teachers could fill out. Obviously, the point is to, like, of all protest tactics, is to be evocative, um, right? Like, they want to evoke those strong emotions. They want to make their case. But at the points that they were doing these things, uh, this was really untethered from an actual realistic risk assessment of just how bad COVID is. And frankly, this is part of why teachers were bumped up in line to receive vaccinations. Uh, I wish we'd vaccinated uh, in every single state from oldest to youngest because that makes the most sense risk-wise. But in a lot of places, because of teachers' unions and because of teachers' demands that they have all these COVID precautions before returning to classrooms, we let them get vaccinated first. We let them jump in line ahead of other people, uh, regardless of their age, because we basically said, you know what? you guys are really important to protect if we want to get kids back in classrooms. And then in many cases, teachers unions still said, nope, we can't return back to classrooms. It's not safe enough yet. It put right, people but in the, a that spot. But the, I, to me, I guess the thing I'm struggling with is like, I want all workers to have that kind of leverage. Like in the case of teachers, the reason I think it's it bothers all three of us is because they took that leverage and um, weaponized it against children, right? So, and that that is horrible. I mean, I, I totally agree with you guys. But at the same time, would any of these teachers be making $100,000 a year or more if if they didn't have a union? I, I kind of, I'm, I'm jealous of the kind of leverage they have. I'm jealous of the kind of power they have. I want every worker in America to have access to something like that. So I feel like I can't say I wish they didn't have it. I, I'm glad they have it because they're workers and I want all workers who are doing important work in America to have that kind of leverage. So I, I feel like there's kind of almost a catch 22 here. 
I mean, we I think we probably have a fundamental disagreement in terms of like, I want the market to be able to decide people's salaries <laughs> and to see how valuable their work productivity, their output is. Um, and I recognize that that sounds really uh, callous to a lot of people. But I see unions as things that sort of sometimes artificially boost those wages. Uh, fundamentally, there are some teaching jobs that are extremely difficult where you do have to be highly educated for them. Uh, but also there are lots of jobs where I'm not totally convinced that you have to be the brightest possible person in order to do those jobs well. Uh, and that's sort of like a cold, hard reality that we're not really comfortable sitting with. But I'm not convinced that being a third grade science teacher is the absolute hardest thing in the world that's deserving of $120,000 a year. Well, and if you're, but and maybe if you're exceptional at it, and and you're just and and the students who come through your classroom end up having you know statistically measurably better outcomes than people would write in a true market system. Kids would parents who'd want your kid educated by you know Mr. Jones or whoever it is, uh, they might fetch be able to fetch a higher set. They might get paid more. They might get distinguished more. Right under our current system, they're only more likely to draw a larger salary the, the automatically the longer they've been there and then if they went and got a master's of education um, yeah. which maybe they don't need a master's of education to be a more effective teacher in fact <laughs> I tend to think it would make you less of an effective teacher probably classroom experience is what makes you a more effective teacher not like learning arcane theories of education from like woke people on campuses um, <laughs> who have who actually have no real world experience as it is so Liz thank you so much for joining us thanks so much for having me and we'll be back with more Rising right after this. Last week, California Governor Gavin Newsom begged residents in his state to avoid charging their EVs in an effort to keep the power grid from crashing during a heat wave. The irony is Newsom signed legislation a week earlier that would ban the sale of gas-powered cars by 2035. Our next guest, Joel Kotkin, writes in Newsweek that these electric car mandates are nothing less than a war on the working class, since the price of EVs will raise basic costs and give bargaining power to China, who produces most materials needed for EVs. Joel Kotkin joins us now to discuss further. Welcome, Joel. It's my pleasure to be here. So, so walk us through the argument. I think, you know, we're used to thinking of the Democrats, the side of, you know, environmentalism as the side of the little guy, the working class. Walk us through the argument you're making here about why that's not the case. Well, I mean, the problem has been that the Democratic Party, particularly here in California, um, has adopted a, uh, a model, if you will, which is basically climate is the only thing really that matters. And the way we're going to deal with the negative economic side is we're just going to give people more and more uh, subsidies. I mean, uh, Newsom's now talking about giving $1,000 to anyone who doesn't have a car. Now, we know from research that having a car is one of the most effective steps, and this is from uh, more progressive organizations, to alleviating poverty. But what we essentially have now is a state that really only follows a particularly draconian climate policy, which hurts the middle and working class, but actually provides enormous opportunities for the very rich. I mean, it's not by happenstance that Elon Musk is now the world's richest man. 
Replacing the batteries for these vehicles could actually be more expensive than buying an EV itself, depending on the vehicle. According to one family in Florida, of, in Florida a replacement for a 2014 Ford Focus electric racked up a bill of $25,000. Another social media user posted this image of their receipt from a battery change for their Chevrolet Volt, which ended up costing nearly $30,000. So I think the point is that, you know, these these are not at, at the current state of, uh, of innovation. You know, it's a great option for wealthy people, people who care about the environment. Sure, great. I, I think it's, good, you know, good technology and, and will continue to develop. But we're not at the stage where you can just like, oh, yeah, I'll just go get a Tesla, you know, when, when Democrats and Democratic policies um, say that, you know, that's just how you should deal with, uh, with the energy crisis, deal with everything going on. Yeah, just get an electric vehicle. But that's like that's still out of reach for a whole lot of working people. Well, it's not only out of reach, it's, it's terribly impractical for, for many people. Um, one of the real cha uh, challenges is going to be in the in the more industrial area, the people of the Port of Los Angeles, they're saying all the trucks have to be electric. Um, well, they, they don't have big electric trucks and they may be virtually impossible to make. I mean, basically what we're doing is we're imposing a technology that's still developing and what would be much more sensible is to promote all sorts of low emission technologies, natural gas, cars, uh, hydrogen, um, uh, uh, hybrids. Um, uh, there are many, many ways of getting there. And I think what we've done is we're making an enormous mistake by focusing only on one technology um, that will essentially become even more expensive as the materials that you need to make them become more expensive. Um, um, and as you stress the electric uh, grid, there is no way California could absorb the, the, the all the new EVs that, that they're planning. Uh, there's just no way to do it, given our current grid and given the fact that we've shut down almost all, all but one nuclear power plant, which frankly is right now keeping Gavin Newsom um, uh, basically in office because by keeping that that nuclear power plant we didn't we haven't had so far any major outages how you add all that new demand without breaking the system um, is beyond me so here's my question Joel you're not a right winger you're actually a liberal I'm coming at this from the left I read your incredible book that everyone should read the coming neo-feudalism with horror because it describes exactly what you're describing here, which is the process by which the left allowed itself to become the side of pushing for policies that hurt the working class, destroy the middle class and benefit the elites. My question to you is why? How did this happen? How come I can't read you in the New York Times? How come this insight, you know, why is it that the people who are on the left can't see what you see um, and, and, and are pushing this sort of thing? Well, I think part of the issue is that, uh, and, you know, I come from having been, at, you know, worked for the New York Times. I had a monthly column there for a while. I, I also had one in the Washington Post. Probably I couldn't get arrested at either right now. Um, and I think part of it is that there's been this merger of the upper classes uh, in the journalism world. You know, when I was, uh, uh, was working at the Washington Post many, many years ago, the guy sitting next to me was a working class Italian guy whose brother was a Baltimore cop, okay? I don't think you're going to see a lot of that in journalism today, particularly at the elite level. 
Um, so there's a disconnection between the middle and working class and the media. And a very important part of this is, is geographic. The media has become, oddly enough, more concentrated, particularly the big media, um, as the Internet has evolved. And so what you what you see is that people who work in in that in that media increasingly are a very small subset of Americans. They live in New York. They live in Washington. Some of them may uh, be in Silicon Valley or, or in L.A. But outside of that, the rest of the country might as well really not exist. And a large number of those people live in a place where you can take a subway to work, where you can walk to work. They're, you know, New York is a very exceptional environment, but it doesn't relate at all to how people live in Riverside, how they live in, in Westchester County, New York, how they live in, in, in the suburbs of Chicago, not much less the countryside. So there's this total disconnect between sort of elite opinion and the vast majority. And as the the major media has become more elite, it has lost touch with the values of, of people. I mean, sometimes you look at the LA Times, which I still occasionally write for, and you wonder if any of those writers have any have ever owned a house, raised a child, uh, ha- had to drive to work. I, I think there's just this disconnect, and that disconnect is getting larger and larger as the um, as the not just the media but the bureaucracy um, and a large part of the corporate elite have diverged from what would be considered common sense by the vast majority. I take an electric scooter to work many days of the week, but I also <laughs> finally bought a car because for the for the convenience. But uh, you know, it, it would be insane for me to say like electric scooters are you know are the are the option for working people, for families, for people who don't you know live outside cities. Uh, take you forever to get anywhere. Uh, before we let you go, Joel, wanted to get your take. Uh, so here uh, you can see an electric bike bursting into flames while charging, and you can see the owner <laughs> scurries to get water to pour on the fire, which only causes it to create a bigger fire since water reacts violently with lithium and the fire worsens. Uh, you know, what do you make of that? Well, I think one of the problems that I've been hearing from engineers is the problem of, for instance, what happens if a car blows up in a tunnel? Um, I mean, there, there, are, there are clearly this is an evolving technology in a advanced and enlightened capitalist system we would allow all sorts of technologies to compete. And ones that don't work like that, we, we reject. That's, that's how you get innovation. That's how you address problems like climate. You don't do it by taking a one-track draconian um, approach that is really great for to, you know, to keep General Motors alive, but not so great for the American people. Mm. Well said, well said. Well, Joel, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it. It's my, it's my pleasure. More rising right after this. A new report out from Axios shows some companies are dropping COVID vaccine mandates for employees. JP Morgan, Goldman Sachs, Cisco are among the companies that made this leap based on the notion that the virus seems to present less significant illness. The White House warned businesses last week of a potential COVID surge in the fall. But vaccine mandates were not on their list of suggestions to businesses on how to best protect their employees. Employers may be loosening their vaccine requirements, but they're not publicizing it. 
So this is very interesting. Uh, first of all, I'm I'm glad that these uh, these companies. Look, I mean, I think they should do whatever they want, but they can. I, I don't agree with the policy of, of vaccine mandates, particularly because, as we know, it's not really uh, tra uh, preventing transmission of COVID. It does. Uh, the vaccines do help people, especially people in at-risk categories, of having less severe bouts of illness if they do contract COVID. But the whole kind of well, you know, we're going to prevent mass outbreaks in different congregate settings doesn't really hold up. So I think it absolutely makes sense to um, to get rid of these policies, which are just, you know, kind of at this point sort of punishing the, the, the minority of people who haven't gone along with getting vaccinated for, for no legitimate public health uh, reason. So I'm, you know, I'm glad that they're doing it. Um, I think the most, you know, appetite, obviously, for the, the, the craziest thing was was when Biden just declared a national vaccine mandate for, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of, of workers, uh, you know, without Congress say, going through it. He just declared it. And that was obviously actually deemed unconstitutional by the Supreme Court. And, and that and I'm, I'm glad they did that. So, so what, what do you think about this, Bacha? I want someone to acknowledge that they were wrong and other people were right. And now they are doing what the other people yeah. did from the beginning. I want an acknowledgement because how can you trust people who got something this wrong and now are simply acting like that never had just memory holding the mistake gaslighting the American people and and doing what half of Americans have been doing all along and have known is correct all along. I, I just, I can't get past the gaslighting. I want them to acknowledge that firing people over this was wrong, mm -hmm. that if you're vaccinated, you can pass it on. All of this stuff that they said that turned out not to be true, that there were people who were getting that right at the time, who were not sacrificing working class jobs to this wrong understanding of science, right? It's okay to get things wrong, but really it's okay Okay, only because in the future you will admit what, how you got it wrong, why you got it wrong, and what you're going to do better next time in order to make sure you don't make the same mistake again. And I, I just so I, I, I like you. I'm glad to see them lifting this. I'm glad to see that the correct interpretation, which the right had all along, is now being finally acknowledged by the left. I'm glad to see polling that shows that the far left, who are overrepresented in positions of power, are finally less scared about COVID finally getting to the place where everybody else has been all this time. But I want an acknowledgement of how they got this so wrong and what they're going to do in future to make sure that they don't do it again. And so far, there's just nothing along those lines. And that some people are not going to trust what experts, the scientific consensus, et cetera, what it is because of all the mistakes with COVID, all the things that were that were promised, the whole idea that uh, that it, it was gonna it was gonna hold back cases as well like that that was such a that's turned out to be a very pernicious a falsehood because now and now I'll hear sometimes people will I think underplay the value of vaccines in, in preventing you know severe disease for older Americans I think it is still important it should be voluntary but it, it is important uh, to get vaccinated and to get boosted uh, you know if you're if you're very if you're very old or you, you ha you're in bad health, uh, because it, it does still do you well. But I understand people who don't believe that based on everything else that turned out to not be true. Um, with, with, you know, for the whole way, 
all the way through the, the pandemic with all sorts of things, but very much so with the vaccines that were you know, presented as this miracle, uh, like a vaccine, because what, what we understand for so many vaccines is that if you get vaccinated, that means you're actually not, not just that you're not gonna get really sick, but you're not gonna get that disease. That's true of other vaccines. This, is, this works more like the flu vaccine where, you know, get it if you want, but you're, you're not, you, you could still get the, you could still get the, the disease, which doesn't mean you shouldn't get it. It's just like, let's be honest with people. And uh, so many, so many Americans feel like the public health bureaucracy, the experts, the, your, your Dr. Fauci's, et cetera, your CDC's were not honest or they were just wrong and they're not admitting it. They can, they, fine, maybe it's not that they were lying, but they, they don't know everything. They get things wrong. So they have to concede that or there's just not gonna be any trust left in our society at all. And I think that, um, you know, if they had simply gotten a study, said, here's what this study said, here's the information, you know, you make up your own mind. Or even if they had said, here's the study, here's our interpretation of it, here's what we recommend based on this study in like a respectful way, I don't think they would have had such a hard time now saying, hey, actually, that study was wrong. Here's where we're going now. It's the fact that what they said was, they didn't say, here's this information, you make up your own mind. They said, this is the truth. And anybody who doesn't agree with us is a grandma killer, is an idiot, is a moron, hates Americans, is individualist and not caring about the collective, is disgusting. You know, cable news anchors lecturing you, mocking you if you don't agree with them, right? The amount of kind of condescension that they built into this. We are the science. In this house, we follow the science, right? The amount yeah. of moral preening that they built into their approach to this, right, makes it now much more difficult for them to admit that they had been wrong, right? Which is a lesson to us all, you know? Always approach the things you think you know with a little bit of humility to the people who don't agree with you because otherwise you're gonna be in the situation where it is extremely mm -hmm. embarrassing, you know, to have been wrong. You know, I did want to mention something. Uh, Ron DeSantis, Governor DeSantis of Florida, has been speaking at uh, or spoke at a, a conservative conference that's taking place right now, the National Conservative Conference. Probably some people who've been on our show in the past are, are there are speaking. Rachel Bovard, we've had her on before. Um, she's a, you know, kind of member of this ideology. These are the more, uh, these are probably more botcha style conservatives or ones who are more <laughs> interested in what can the government do to, uh, in, in a pot from a right populist perspective, uh, industrial policy, et cetera, there's probably a lot of support for things uh, that, that you might agree with, uh, actually less so than, than, than me. But uh, DeSantis apparently said that, um, uh, so he was defending his, uh, because there, there it's not just, there's not a government vaccine mandate, but DeSantis actually banned private companies from having, from requiring vaccines, which while I, I don't think I don't ag agree with the policy of, of having a vaccine mandate if you're a private company. I would not give the government, I don't think the government should or does have the power to prevent a private government from having a vaccine mandate if they want to. Um, that, that seems, on the, in the, on the exact same theory that I would not uh, require a company, a you know, a, a Christian bakery to bake a cake for someone, or I would not. I said on the show, uh, Bach, uh, uh, Brianna and I had this argument last week about uh, the, the Supreme Court health care decision for covering um, medical, uh, uh, the, the uh, uh, PrEP, which is the HIV uh, prevention drug, and the, and the Christian company that sued said they didn't want to cover that. They won, and I, I agree with that, because while I don't agree with that policy whatsoever, I wouldn't force people 
people to do things they don't want to do or prevent them from doing things they want to do. So on that same argument, I, I think it's crazy for you know, Republicans who embrace the idea that the government could prohibit a private company from requiring that. Like, I mean, do, I, do Republicans just expect they'll win forever? Like, what, what happens then when a Democrat comes in and requires something? Like, shouldn't we, can't we move beyond everything being, like, required or forbidden and just, like, let, leave it up to organizations and individuals and structures? So I had to, you know, I, I, I wanted to get that in there because I don't agree with this argument at all. So, but, Robbie, how far do you take that? So do you also think the government should not be able to bar private companies from discriminating based on gender, race, and sexuality as well? I do. I, in fact, I do. Um, I, look, it's not a, a high priority for me to like undo um, civil rights law, but a lot of a, a lot of the discrimination that existed, even in, was not like freely arrived at by by company, but was you know was required under uh, under Jim Crow and other policies. I don't think. Look, I, I don't think uh, there would be a, a serious effort to return to those restrictions. A, a company that does that is going to get protesters on the streets, which is absolutely appropriate. You know, I'll grab a sign and join them. Um, I don't think it. The government needs uh, ought, ought to do it because it can be because it's a slippery slope for requiring these companies to do all sorts of other things or in, you know infringing on sincerely held belief uh, it, it, uh, that a religious institutions can have and other institutions. So that would be my or you you know you got to show to me a need. You have to say here's why we need the government to require or forbid this because. It's just so, it's it, here's the overwhelming reason why we would need this law. And then if, if you I guess I'm, an, I'm a reasonable person. If you persuade me we need this law, I, you might change my mind. But I don't think any of these I don't think these things are necessary. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I happen to have a cousin who works in mediation and he tells me that what happens all the time, which shocked me, I never would have thought this was like a regular occurrence. But apparently um, very frequently men will hit on subordinate women and if they say no they'll fire them i mean that seemed to me like the kind of thing that i just assumed had gone by the what you know the way of the mm -hmm. the way of the horse and buggy cart right but apparently it is quite frequent and um you know we have i i, I believe we you know it's important to have these lies in place because you, you know a person's job a person's livelihood is something that i think you know the government should protect so i'm sort of consistent on the other side of this right i think from an economic point of view from a legal point of view right non-discrimination is part of you know the protection of of not just the rights of individuals but the right of an individual to support their family which is very important for the most part though i, I feel like companies at least in this day and age absolutely do not want their employees. It, look, it looks bad, right? Because you fire someone, then they can easily tell their story. You know, in the post-Me Too era, you, you can invite all sorts of, like, negative attention or, you know, punishments on the, the firm for doing that. So I, I could be wrong. I think firms actually you know, want, in fact, might even default too far the other way to, like, because, <laughs> you know, if you're accused of something, I, I, I think it's, it's right to be treated with fairness, even if, you know, even if you're guilty of it. But they could default the other way because they don't want the negative um, uh, a PR. But maybe, uh, maybe I'm wrong about that, and maybe we still need those restrictions. But I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't impose new, like, I, I, I don't know. I, I don't really trust the government to be in charge of deciding what the policies should be, whether that's mm -hmm. DeSantis or Biden or whomever. Well, I, like, you talked in your radar about all, you know, all the, the acrimony in our society, and it's like because it's not just, well, I disagree, but you do your thing. It's like whoever wins, it gets enforced on everyone which seems unhealthy for society. But that's just, that's just my view of it. All right, we'll have more yeah. Rising right after this. Stay with us.
Yesterday, U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen told CNN that the European Union's planned suspension of Russian gas exports may cause Americans more pain at the pump this winter. Let's watch. Gas prices have actually yes. fallen about $1.40 from their peak. Some are worried, though, that they yes. could go back up in the winter. Should Americans be ready for that? Well, it's a risk. And it's a risk that um, we're working on the price cap to try to address. Um, this winter, uh, the European Union will uh, cease, uh, for the most part, buying Russian oil. And in addition, they will ban the provision of services um, that enable Russia to ship oil by tanker. And it is possible that that could cause a spike in oil prices. Yellen's warning comes after a proposed price cap on Russian energy earned the support of the G7. Guidance released by the Treasury Department on Friday warned Western energy companies that purchases of Russian oil above the price cap may result in sanctions enforcement action. As the European Union weighs implementing a similar price cap, President Vladimir Putin jeered at EU leaders over the weekend, calling the idea stupid and warning it will cause Europe to freeze this winter. And it very well might. I mean, people are going to have much more difficulty than they're already having procuring energy. Uh, Janet Yellen described this as a risk, but the implicit part, as she says that, is then is this is a risk worth taking, obviously, is what is what our government's mm -hmm. saying. Like, this is, they're, like they're admitting this is going to be painful, and they're saying we're just going to do this anyway because we believe our Ukraine-Russia policy is the right one, or we believe our energy policy more broadly is the right one. A very confused energy policy of like punishing Russia, but then you know begging Saudi Arabia for more gasoline, even though we don't want uh, we, we don't want to drill more, we don't want to produce more domestically, but we have to ask for it from other. Like it's it's just insane to me that I mean I complain about this every time we talk about this subject, but my my. My view is, I don't understand why U.S. officials like Yellen and others don't get this. Like, the American people don't want to suffer this pain. Like, they don't, they don't, want, they don't want to freeze like their European compatriots. So if our government leaders, like, don't listen to the people and don't rethink some of these policies, they're just, like, the people are going to, I mean, not, not literally rise up, but eventually, I guess, if it got that painful, but they're going to vote them out. This is going to be the end of the Biden administration. Why don't they get that? I know it's it's very distressing. Um, it's a sort of classic example of cutting off your nose to spite your face, except you're cutting off someone else's nose, right? <laughs> like, yeah. That's that's the thing here is that the moral preening of the elites is always paid for by the working class, and so you know they can keep doing. You look look at California, right? You have this huge energy crisis right now. Uh, the price of electricity is skyrocketing. That the grid is about to collapse, right? But the rich people who have massive amounts of land, they all have their you know you know their they're sort of sun sunroofs, right? So they're not, you know, paying for it. They're sitting there morally preening. They're, you know, overwhelmingly support all of the, making electricity more expensive. And then it's their working class neighbors who end up paying for it. It's the same thing here. You know, working class people are going to end up paying for this at the pump, whereas, you know, rich people drive zipping around in their electric cars, right, are not going to feel it and then are going to brag about how they have an electric car. And so they're not feeling it. And I, I just, I, I, you know, the, 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 the people, the American people, the 
working class, the middle class, were the people who were not consulted when we ran headlong into our, like you said, our Ukraine-Russia policy. Um, and it's it's so distressing, especially now that finally gas prices are coming down after a high of, you know, it was like $6 right. on average. Um, it's, it's very distressing. Because there's no there's no public appetite for doing this. It's yeah. not even like the 9/11 scenario, which you talked about in your radar, where like, yeah, it hurts, but you know, 90% of people approve of our president and you know want to do whatever it takes to stop Vladimir Putin. That is not the case. Like, if you ask people, they'll say, no, I don't want to pay higher gas prices for this conflict. I'm not willing to do it. I can't afford to do it. You know, what if you're a truck driver? What, or what, what if you have a business? I, I have a family member who, uh, who has a business that involves a good, great small business, involves driving around in a large vehicle a lot, you know, from, from work site to work site. Um, th you know, think how people like that, their, their take-home pay is being squeezed, squeezed by a policy that has created this. And we're really glad that gas prices are coming down now. I think that's probably the main reason Democrats no longer look like they're going to get totally, utterly destroyed and wiped out in the midterms. There are other reasons, but I think one of the big ones is that actually the situation's not as bad as it was four or five months ago. Uh, but so maybe maybe the administration is savvy enough to time the massive, massive hits, the massive price increases for energy, like <laughs> right, uh, far enough before and then somewhat after um, the election. Maybe they actually have enough savvy to do that because people are going to punish them for it. They don't want to pay these prices. Yeah, it's it's um it's really horrifying, but I think it does expose a more general pattern of, you know, of you know, like I said, moral preening, polishing your halo, and then asking somebody else to pay the price for you feeling good about yourself. You know, Ralph Schulhammer, who we had on on Rising a few months ago, he made a really important point. He said you can't have a middle class without affordable energy, and whether it's foreign policy with the war in Ukraine, domestic policy with electric vehicles, and and um, banning gas cars. Um, you know, you, you, you have over and over an elite that is enforcing its, you know, aesthetic moral preferences on the nation and asking people who can least afford it to pay for it. Polishing your halo. I've never heard that that uh, phrase before. That's a good one. That's really? One about you. Never heard that <laughs> yeah. before. It's exactly what's going on here. All right. We'll have more rising after this. Stay with us. A legislative package dealing with maternal health care approved by members of New York City's city council last month replaces all references to mothers with birthing persons. Now, the legislation's supporters say it will reduce racial disparities in pregnancy care and outcomes. Greg Gutfeld blasted Team Blue over a poll conducted by WPA Intelligence that found nearly one in four Democrats believe men can get pregnant. Let's watch. A new poll finds that 22% of Democrats agreed with the statement, some men can get pregnant. And 36% of white college-educated female Democrats agreed that, yes, a man can get pregnant. I'd love someone to ask them, okay, how many pregnant men do you think there really are? Because I think that would help correct this madness. No one ever asked that question. So I hate, just utterly hate, I don't know how you feel about it, loathe the phrase birthing persons. It just sounds so impersonal uh, to me. It's, it's, it's not a... Being a mother is a, a beautiful thing. I, I love my own, my own mother. Um, 
it's uh, we, we all do. It's a it's a it's a beautiful thing we're celebrating. Um, I, look, without being disparaging at all to trans people, I accept that yes, trans men. Uh, people who started out as women and then transition may still be able to, uh, and might have the physiology to still become pregnant. Uh, that's a that is true. It's also you know a very 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 rare occurrence. Like there aren't that many trans people anyway. So we're talking like about a tiny number of people. And I hate when we can't have right right all definitions, all words, are ca all categories have exceptions. And yes, there is a very 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 small exception for the category of motherhood where it is. Technically, like, yes, it's technically true. There are trans men who can't get pregnant. Absolutely acceptable. Doesn't mean, you know, basic statements like <laughs> it's mothers and, and the overwhelming number of people giving birth are women. And most, like, it's, we can just have these categories without, to my, to my mind, like radically having new language to, to describe these things. There are exceptions to every rule. These exceptions exist. Fine. But let, like, we don't have to erase the concept of motherhood for a small number of counterexamples, right? Here's my question. So 22% of Democrats think that men, some men can, have, can get pregnant and have babies. Why are the Democrats catering to 22% oh. instead of 78%? Yeah. Like, what is going... But it's so typical. It's so emblematic. Because they hate the 70%. They hate the 70%. Exactly. They, they're... <laughs> They only have conversations with that. Uh, again, this is a small, well, well, it's a very small, incredibly small sliver of the population we're talking about. I mean, I don't, uh, we might be talking about like hundreds of people, thousands, like not, not like so, if, if, you know, given the size of our country, the population. The people who agree with that are also this, uh, they're a larger minority, but they're still a, a minority. And but the, but that's the, that's the elite media. That's the elite activists. The conversations around these things are, are so. And, and I want you know I want to be clear. I'm not being dismissive of the concept of tra like I believe that trans people exist. I'm a social moderate personally. Absolutely, you can you can be a woman. You can transition to a man. You can, and you can still be capable of pregnancy. And we can use accurate language that describes that. And and I there should be no. I don't support stigmatizing that or having any. There's nothing wrong with that. But we do not. Need to abolish gender or motherhood or any of these concepts that are meaningful to people and important to people for people's identity as men and as women. Uh, I, 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 I know women that feel strongly about their womanhood and have had you know experiences as women that would not necessarily necessarily be shared by men or by or by trans men or by trans women. Um, the, these categories usually have some meaning. It doesn't mean there aren't exceptions, but they exist, and we shouldn't pretend they don't. That's my. That's my rant for the day. Right. <laughs> and I mean, no, I, I, I and I think that be even beyond the sort of question of morality is the political question, which is that, you know, when Democrats speak to only 22 percent of their voters, they're opening up, you know, the lane for Republicans, which is exactly what happened. So several Republican members of the council spoke out against the revised language. Councilwoman Joanne Ariola of Queens told The Post, quote, as a woman who has children, it should be mother. We can't let something so meaningful be canceled. Yeah, no, exactly. It's meaningful to so many people.
And new research conducted across several Western countries shows that having children, not getting older, causes more conservative views, especially in the United States. Study participants with children overall valued traditionalism when it came to social issues more than those without it. The correlation between having children and conservatism is high independent of age, which is a very interesting finding because people have always said, you know, it's getting older. You know, what's the old saying? If you're a, if you're a, uh, conservative under 30, you have no heart. If you're a liberal over that 30, <laughs> I don't remember exactly. That kind of sentiment. You, know, people, you have no head. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. You start, uh, and there's a sense that you know, people start paying taxes. Their, uh, their views get a little less progressive on economic <laughs> issues when you get your first paycheck and find out how much of your hard-earned take-home pay was confiscated by the government. Um, and, and mailed to Ukraine or, or wherever. Uh, but, uh, but this study found it was actually having kids, which actually makes a lot of sense, um, especially, I guess, how, how things are now. And, and look, our, our policies are not, uh, many of, our, many of our, the, the government policies having to do with uh, children, raising a family, it, it ha I think it has gotten harder in some sense over time because while a lot has gotten better just generally in, in society, you know, technology, et cetera, uh, labor-intensive things have not gotten easier. So, so like, like child care, education, um, th those kinds of, uh, kinds of things that, uh, that parents are really going to be reliant on have actually not gotten more affordable. They've not gotten easier. So it can be, it, it's hard to, uh, or, I, or I don't know, people also put way more, um, uh, invest way more resources into the fewer kids that they are having. So the people, it, like it's crazy to think that people used to have on average like, you know, I don't know how many, but far, far more children than families do uh, today. And and that yeah, you just kind of let the kids run wild, or I guess you wouldn't. You have less uh, oversight of that. You know, I like the the, the woman who uh, who lived next to me when I was growing up, an older woman who babysat me. I just have me and my brother, and she, you know, when she grew up on a farm in you know the 1920s, and uh, she was one of like seven or something, and like that was just that was the. That was the way it was. Um, it's di different now, obviously. Neither of us have children, so we're just speculating about <laughs> about, par about parenthood. But I understand how it could make you uh, more conservative in today's day and age. Absolutely. And um, well, tomorrow on Rising, we'll continue to monitor the war in Ukraine. And Brianna Joy Gray will be back with you all. And I will see you next week. So lovely having you today, as always, Batya. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who like to listen while on the go, we're now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. Catch us on the Plex TV app, if that is applicable to you. And I will see you back here tomorrow with Brianna. Bye-bye, everybody.